first topic tonight, we're going to talk, if you were here two weeks ago, remember last week was about the Holy Spirit. The first week we did this, it was about love and grace. Where tonight we're going to cover, the first topic will be balance. And I kind of hinted about balance that first night. And we'll have a few subtopics of this balance. But I want to first start with a quote from Chuck Smith. And Chuck Smith came and visited here before he died. He passed away quite a few years back now. But he came to Melbourne. He's been to your church, our church. Here's a quote from Chuck Smith. Let's look at it together on screen. I love this. One of our important characteristics about balance. It's our desire to not divide God's people, all of you, over non-essential, and I put the words non-doctrinal. So we don't want to divide each other over non-essential stuff, non-doctrinal stuff. Does that make sense? And that's kind of the overall theme of a Calvary Chapel. We don't get hung up on little details and argue over them. And if you were here back in that first week, I did tell you that we teach sort of a balanced style, which is normally mainly line by line, verse by verse. You come back for Romans next week, you're going to get Romans line by line, chapter one, verse by verse, where tonight will be one of the more nights I would call topical. We're talking about balance. We're talking about some other stuff. We'll have a lot of scriptures thrown in. I'll have most of them on the screen for us. So we mix in some topical stuff occasionally, but like in the weekend, you know, we're doing the book of John. Pretty much we're doing John line by line, verse by verse. But if you remember back even during John, we did a short three weekend series on relationships. That would be one of those topical weekends or two or three I'm talking about. So mainly line by line in a balanced way, but also a little bit of topical occasionally when we think it's sort of necessary. But if it is a doctrine, that, that quote was about doctrinal or non-doctrinal issues. If it's a doctrinal issue, and, and if you're not familiar with that term, what that would be, Jesus is God. Everybody agree with that? Of course you do, because you're here tonight. That's a doctrinal issue. In other words, it's not negotiable. So we're going to teach that one. It's not negotiable. We will argue over that one if you want to. But I know you're believers. You're not going to argue about that. But some denominations might. Or how we get saved. What did Jesus say? It's, I'll paraphrase it. He said, it's my way or the highway. You know, I am the truth and the light. It's no other way except through me. That's a doctrinal issue. There is no other way. Or the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. That's a doctrinal issue. We'll touch on a few non-doctrinal issues tonight, and you'll, you'll see when I get there. And a, a good example of that, and we touched on it back in Revelation, I'm going to hit it a little bit tonight again, would be the tribulation. You know, we at Calvary, and I mentioned in Revelation, we are kind of what we call pre-trib or pre-tribulation a church. Not everybody is. Some of you may not be. That's okay. That's not a doctrinal issue. It won't keep us out of heaven if we believe in the mid-trib or the post-trib. It's okay. But just so you know, when we're a Calvary, we will teach it the way Calvary as a whole sees it, which would be pre-trib. So if you come to Calvary, you're going to hear a pre-trib point of view. You can have your own midpoint or post-trib. That's okay. Just be aware you're, you will probably hear pre-trib from up here. Which brings up our first main point for taking notes. It's okay to agree to disagree about these non-doctrinal issues. It's not worth the energy and the time to argue about it, in other words. Because there is certain things you can have your own opinion once again, it doesn't get us into heaven or keep us out of heaven. They're non-essentials. It's more of a matter of opinion. It's not doctrine. 
But within the whole evangelical movement, Calvary kind of, I think I did this the first night too, splits the difference. We're kind of in the middle or the median. You have some groups way over on this side of the fence about topics, other ones way over here. And Pastor Dave, if you were here last week, he mentioned the fundamental and charismatic movements. I will hit those again tonight. I kind of hit them the first week we were here too. Because we would agree with parts of what they both say. For example, for the fundamental side, we would agree with the fundamentalist that the Bible, the entire Bible, it is the Word of God, correct? It is. Not contains. It does not contain the Word of God. There's a big difference, by the way. It is, in its entirety, the Word of God, not just the parts we like. If you hear somebody say it contains the Word of God, that's really code language for I don't like some of those hard verses, and I don't want to really obey them, so I'm going to say it contains the Word. That's not what we believe, and many other good churches too, by the way. So the fundamentalists, we would side with them on that side of the equation. But unlike the fundamentalists, we would side more on the charismatic side about the gifts of the Spirit. And if you were here last Wednesday, we had a Holy Spirit night. If you missed it, you can pull up the archive online. Basically, Pastor Dave just taught on the Holy Spirit, and then we gave the people, all of you, a chance to be prayed to be filled with the Spirit if you liked. But really, you don't have to come to that special night. We just kind of teach on it to demonstrate it in a way. You can do that in your seat tonight, at your house later. You could have done it last week and watching online. But we like to explain it so you kind of understand it. In our first subtopic of this balance, we're going to start off with spiritual gifts. So our subtopic, if you will, will be spiritual gifts in the main topic of balance. Because a lot of denominations believe the spiritual gifts have stopped. They're not for today. That was for the biblical apostles. And many denominations believe that. And I'm not going to list them all, but I'll give you an example or two. The Baptists, the Methodists, Presbyterians, and the Catholics all would say the gifts have ceased. They've stopped, in other words. And what they would probably focus on is the gift of tongues. And Pastor Dave talked about that last week. I'll hit it again a little bit tonight. But also they would include prophecy. A lot of them would say miracles have stopped. I think we all want a miracle, don't we? Amen. So, but we would say all those gifts are active and they're still alive today, maybe just in a little different format. But they all would, all those ones I rattled off just now, they believe in a doctrine that's called cessationism. They're cessationists. In other words, the gifts have ceased. It's where they get that cessation word. And they usually refer to a couple of verses out of 1 Corinthians. And if you were here back in the week one of this little short series, remember I taught on the love verses, and that's out of 1 Corinthians. Well, I stopped, I think, at verse 7-ish, somewhere right in there. I have to get my own notes to check. But we're going to pick up almost where I stopped. We're going to look at verse 8, and it'll be on the screen so we can look at it together. Here's 1 Corinthians 13. Love never fails. That's the one I didn't say because I was holding it for tonight. But look what it says right after that. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they'll be done away with. If there are gifts of tongues, they will cease, cessationist. If there is knowledge, it'll be done away with. Then verse 9 says, for we know in part, we prophesy in part, and in Paul meant now, but when the perfect comes, that word's bolded for a reason, when the perfect comes, the partial, the spiritual gifts, will be done away with. So the real debate becomes between these two sides of the fence, what does perfect mean? Because both sides interpret it differently. 
we would say, Calvary would say, some of you would say likely, that the perfect is not here yet. The perfect to us would be Jesus' second coming, what we just sang about. That would be the perfect. Or the words, you see Jesus face to face. Won't that be perfect when you see him face to face? Yes, it will be. But the cessationists, those denominations I mentioned, they would say the perfect was the completion of Scripture. So when the Bible was completed, everything's perfect. Well, turn the news on. Does it look perfect to you out there? I would say no, personally, but that's once again my opinion. This is not a doctrinal issue. We can agree to disagree even on this one. But we at Calvary believe the gifts are still active. It all comes down to perfect. And when we would say, once again, either when I die a natural death or I get raptured, whenever I see Jesus, that would be the perfect. And then it would make sense. Why would you need tongues? Why would you need miracles? Jesus will be there in person. He can do all the miracles for us. We won't need any miracle. It'll be a miracle we got there. So for some of us, especially like me. Um, so that's when they would cease. Until then, we believe they're still in effect. But on the other side of that equation, the more charismatic denominations, they tend to sort of overvalue, in our opinion, overvalue the gifts because what I mean by that, they will sometimes value the gifts over the teaching of the word. And even at Calvary Chapel, Melbourne, when we were small, we would occasionally, when it was one room over there in the cafe or the cafetorium, as we call it sometime, that room behind the cafe, that was the whole church in the early days, there would be people that would stand up and speak in tongues during the sermon. And the teaching pastor, which was Pastor Mark at that time, he would look around and say, can anybody interpret that? And nobody would stand up. I never saw him stand up. He'd say, well, then sit down. We're teaching the word right now. It's for the teaching of God's word. That's for a separate time. But other denominations see it's just any time and every time. Anybody that wants to speak in tongues can stand up and do it. It takes away from the message. For example, if I'm up here tonight explaining what we're talking about, if two of you popped up right now and started speaking in tongues, everybody turn around and look. They want to see what's going on in the back of the room or wherever you were standing. They'd quit listening to me altogether, and we would get really no teaching time in. So we would make the case that's for a separate time, a small group, a different setting, not the main sermon. Does that make sense? So that's how we see it. And even Pastor Dave touched on this one too. Some denominations will tell you if you don't speak in tongues, you're probably not saved. And they'll kind of look at you like, you can't speak in tongues. I don't know if you're going to heaven. Once again, Scripture does not say that. Paul even calls it the lesser of the gifts. He more focuses on love like we did on week one. But in Scripture, we do see three types of tongues, and, and Dave touched on this last week. Unlearned language, which you don't see much anymore, but I just read a story this week. There were some missionaries over on the African continent. I forget what country they were in, but they were way out in the tribal areas, and they did not speak the local language, and the natives did not speak English, which is what the missionaries were speaking. But lo and behold, they were able to talk and converse. And the missionaries were shocked because they were from a secessionist denomination. But God knew that they couldn't get anything done, so he gave them the gift of tongues without even asking for it. And they were talking in this foreign language. They got back to town. They couldn't do it anymore. So they're all amazed. It was for a specific use, for a specific time. And you just don't see that one much because it's really for a specific thing. 
The other version would be the one I mentioned a while ago when we were smaller. It would be tongues with interpretation. In other words, somebody stands up, speaks in tongues. One of you over here would say, Dave's over there saying this, this, and this, and you interpret it. And it can't be, by the way, some vague thing like, God loves you. That's really not interpretation. It's got to be a little more specific and drilled down like a prophetic word that's sort of specific. But the last one is the one we do see a lot, and that's the one Dave, I think, hinted on last week, praying in tongues, the private prayer language. That's the primary evidence that we would teach and believe in here. But let's look at a verse, because Dave didn't have time to read the verse, and I want us to look at the verse of, of why we would teach and believe that. Let's look at it together. We're back in 1 Corinthians. Now we're in chapter 14. It says, anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people, and it's talking about this prayer language, but to God. It's a private language between you and the Lord. And look what he says next. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit or the Holy Spirit. But the one who prophesies speaks to the people. That would be more the interpretation or a specific prophetic gift. But look what that one's for. It's for their strengthening, their encouraging, and their comfort. Anyone who speaks in a tongue or a private language edifies themselves. It's really for your benefit and God's because God knows what you're saying. You don't know what you're saying, but God does, and he understands. But the one who prophesies edifies the church. So we would use this verse, and there's others. I'll just pick this one to kind of justify our position. It's a private prayer language between you and the Lord. That's the one that you would see more often. But once again, not everybody gets it, which is why we don't believe if you can't speak in tongues, you're not saved. Not everybody gets every gift. Some of you get the gift of serving, gift of mercy, gift of helps. There's a long list of spiritual gifts. We have a spiritual gifts test you can take. But these are more the charismatic gifts. These are the ones you would pray. And if you want to speak in tongues, you would just pray, Jesus, if you desire to give me that, give it to me. He may not. Not everybody gets it. That's why we would say it's really a fallacy to say if you can't speak in tongues, you're not saved. That's just really kind of bad doctrine. But let's move on to our second main topic, or subtopic, excuse me, our subtopic in balance. Let's talk about end times for a second. And when I say end times, I specifically mean the rapture. And we talked about that back in Revelation, if you were here for those nights. Now, some people will tell you there's no such thing because there's not the word rapture in the Bible. Well, they're actually correct, because last time I checked, the original writers didn't write the Bible in English. They kind of wrote it in usually Greek, New Testament Greek. The Old Testament was, of course, Hebrew, but there's a Greek word called harpazo. Harpazo, you've probably heard it before by some pastor. What it really translates to is caught up or snatched away. You'll see it written two ways, snatched up. It means what it sounds like, snatched up into the air. If you have your Bibles or your phone, I'll read it out loud, but if you have your Bible or your phone, turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And we're going to read about the rapture or this catching up. And we're going to read verses 15 through 17. So 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 through 17. And you'll know them when I start reading it. Here's what it says. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, all of us tonight, as long as you're all alive in here, and I think you are. Some of you I kind of wonder about, though. You're not moving much. But I'll try to yell more and wake you up. Those of us who are alive who are left until the coming of the Lord, in other words, his second coming, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. 
And in this context, by the way, asleep means dead. So the alive will not precede the dead. Then verse 16 says, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven, this is Jesus in his second coming, with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, we heard that in Revelation, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Verse 17 is where we come in. After that, we who are still alive, we hadn't died yet, we're still walking around on the earth before Jesus comes back, we who are alive and are left will be, what's it say? Caught up. We will be caught up together with them in the clouds, in the air, to meet the Lord in the air. This is where we get the word rapture. Caught up, harpazo, raptured into the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. And I remember I told you Calvary's believe in a pre-trib rapture. So this would be before the wrath starts. And we spoke a lot about that on Revelation. I'm not going to hit it tonight. We will look at a few kind of main points, though, about the rapture. What Calvary believes. Let's look on the screen. Pre-trib rapture. What that means is the rapture of the church, all of you, me, if we don't die a natural death, we will be raptured out of the earth when all the bad stuff starts at end times. It's followed by a seven-year period of great tribulation. The Antichrist comes out about the midway point of that, followed by Jesus' second coming, which we would come back with him at that point. So we are raptured away until his return. Then finally, when we do come back with him, we get to be here for the, what they call the millennial reign. The thousand, millennium just means a thousand. A thousand-year reign with Jesus here on earth, New heaven, new earth, everything's perfect even down here. And we mentioned perfect earlier. That's when we would get a perfect heaven, perfect earth. So that's how Calvary would see that. And, and we would be raptured out of here before all the wrath. That's how we see it. But if you don't see it that way, that's okay. Once again, that's not a doctrinal issue. You can be mid, you can be post. It's okay. Make your own minds up. Read the verses. It's okay. So... That's our kind of subtopic. Our, our next subtopic of this balance would be replacement theology, which you may or may not hear a lot about, but I'm going to touch on it just and kind of summarize some things for us, because you need to know what your church believes, don't you? I think it's a good thing to be well-informed, because you obviously like Calvary Chapel. You're here, but you should be able to know why you like it. This is partly some of the reasons why you like it. But once again, it's okay to disagree with some. Well, we believe in the non-replacement theology, but replacement says that the church, all of you, me, the, the modern church has replaced the Jewish nation as God's chosen people. That's why it's called replacement theology. So then you might wonder, well, who believes that? Because maybe you don't know about this. A lot of people don't, by the way. Well, I'll, I'm on, once again, I'm not going to give you a complete list. I'll make this list a little longer I'm also going to attach some numbers to it and do a little math toward each denomination. The Catholic Church believes this, and that's ballpark around 66 million people. The Seventh-day Adventists believe this, 20, million, 20 more million. Southern Baptists, most of them anyway, 18 million. United Methodist Church. Now, the Methodist has two arms like the Presbyterians. The United Methodist, that's about 8 million. They believe this. Church of God in Christ, or Kajik, as you'll hear it called sometime. They would believe this. The church or the cult of the Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, they believe this. 
Six million people. The Lutheran church, for the most part, believes this. That's about five million. Presbyterians, that one arm I talked about, four more million. Some, not all, some of the Assemblies of God and some, not all, of the Episcopal churches would also believe in replacement theology. All total, and that's not all inclusive, those numbers I just rattled out to us, that's 135 million people that believe God is done with the Jewish nation. Well, they just didn't read Revelation very close, as mine's are on that one, because we clearly saw, and I'm going to bring us a few more verses up, because we at Calvary believe that God has a plan for the Jewish nation. They are his chosen people. Scripture's crystal clear. We are support the Jews. We love the Jews. We love Israel. We're to stand by Israel. Because God tells us, if you bless Israel, I'll bless you. You pull your hand off Israel, I'll pull my hand off you. One reason we got to watch what our country's doing nowadays, because we have to support Israel as a nation, or God will not bless us. So why do we believe that? Well, we believe in Scripture. Scripture's pretty clear about this. And if you were here even right before we taught um, this distinctive, remember we added Zechariah between, or Zechariah, excuse me, i got to get my E in there right. I always want to make it an A sometime. I'm going to put two verses up. Let's refresh our memory from Zechariah. 14.9, the Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day, and this is the end time, second coming, There'll be one Lord in his name, the only name. So there's no doubt that Jesus, who's a Jew, by the way, is the Lord and king of the earth. But then look what 16 says. Then the survivors from all the nations that have attacked Jerusalem will go up. In other words, now they're defeated. They will go up year after year, and I taught on this, to worship the king, Jesus, the Lord Almighty. And look what it says, to celebrate the festival of tabernacles. Last time I checked, that's a Jewish feast in a Jewish city in a Jewish nation. So why in the world would he bring all of us Gentiles over there in the Jewish motherland to do all that? We will be there, but so will the remnant of the Jews that get saved in the end times. And remember, if you were here in Revelation, we believe those two witnesses, one of their main jobs is to evangelize the Jewish nation. But... Those are Old Testament. Maybe you're thinking, well, those are Old Testament verses, okay? Turn to, if you have your Bible or your phone again, turn to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. And I'm going to read 25 and 26. I'll read it out loud. You don't have to have your Bible, but it's nice to follow along to check my work, if you will. Romans 11, 25 and 26. Here's what it says. And this is Paul. And we'll cover this in detail when we teach Romans chapter 11 in a month or two when we finally get to chapter 11. Here's what Paul says. I do not want you, all of us, to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. So God is still bringing Gentiles into the flock. Remember, we are grafted in. There's still more grafting to be done, more grafting going on. He wants the whole world saved. But when that finally concludes... It says, if I keep reading, and then this way, what's it say? All of Israel. All of Israel will be saved. So is God done with the Jews if all of Israel will be saved? No. That's the Jewish nation. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. That's Jesus. 
So the Jews will get a second chance, the ones that are left anyway, to do what we did, believe in Jesus as the Messiah. There is no other way. They've got to admit they were wrong and believe in Jesus and do just what we all did. Jesus, I love you. Jesus, you're Lord. We messed up. They have to get saved exactly like we do. They don't go to heaven because they have gent- I mean, Jewish DNA in their bloodstream. They don't get to go to heaven because they can trace their lineage back to Abraham. They go to heaven because of Jesus, just like us. There is no other way. That is a doctrinal statement by Jesus. So, but God's not done with them. That's why we have to support them. So let's change topics to a hard one. Chosen and elected. Chosen and elected. This is our fourth subtopic in the balance. And once again, it's okay to agree to disagree on this one. And I'm not going to bore us with a bunch of big fancy words, but it really goes back to there's two kind of famous guys that had polar opposite beliefs on this chosen elected position. John Calvin, so you'll hear the word Calvinist a lot. He lived, by the way, from 1509 to 1564. Then his sort of polar opposite in the opinion would be Jacobus Arminius, Arminianism. He lived from 1560 to 1609. But isn't it kind of funny to anybody but me? You know, we're, we're kind of hanging our hats on two guys from the 1500s. That seems to me a little odd. I think we know a little more now than we did in 1500, for example. I think they might have thought the earth was flat back then. Who knows? So it's funny we've put all our marbles in these two guys' you know, baskets of opinion. But to sum up what they kind of both believe, a true kind of hardline Calvinist or a person that subscribes to Calvinism would tell you, we're elected, we're chosen, and Scripture does say that, by the way. We'll cover that in detail in Romans. But we have no choice in the matter, zero. Zero choice of ours. You're all predestined, pre-chosen, pre-elected. And there is verses, by the way, that say that. So bear with me here. On the other side of the extreme, remember we're on extremes now, Arminianism would say it's all your choice. 100%, it's all up to you. It's up to you to be saved. All your choice. Calvary believes neither. We, once again, split the difference. Let's come to the middle ground. We believe there's a balance between those two extreme opinions because we believe neither one of them gets it right. They're not adequate to cover every scenario. And the reason would be, here's why. We believe that our finite human minds cannot get your head fully around that concept. It's a concept only God can understand. That we are chosen, yes. We are elected, yes. Even before we were born, Scripture says God chose us. He other, he, remember he talks about, I knew you in your womb and your unformed body? He chose us. Scripture says that. But we believe we have to respond to it. He does give us a little bit of response, if you will. But he being God, he knows. Here's what's hard to understand. This is why I say our, our, our finite human mind can't really get this one. God knows what I'm going to choose before I ever do it. Before I'm born, God knew I would be saved because he knows what Dave's going to do. He knows what all you're going to do. So I think I have a choice. Do I really? I don't know. That's what I mean. It's good luck getting your head around that. It's kind of like the Trinity. If anybody says they fully understand the Trinity, I kind of look at them funny. It's a hard concept to get your head around. God in three persons. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father as we speak, and the Holy Spirit's there, so they're basically in the same room. 
but they're all God, and they're God in three persons. It's a hard concept. We kind of think we understand it until we really think about it more, and like, I don't know about that one. I don't know if I get that. You don't have to get it. That's the beauty of Christianity. We just have to have faith and believe. Believe in Jesus. But it brings up our second point if we're taking notes. It's important to tell people about heaven, about Jesus. What's not important is to argue about how we got there as far as chosen, elected, or pre-chosen. We want to tell people that don't know Jesus about him. We want to fill heaven up with people. We will all get there if we're saved. If you're not saved, we can pray that and fix that tonight at the end of the service. But when I get there, and I will be there, I will see most of you there that I know because you're believers. Some of you I don't know. If you're not saved, once again, come down here and let's pray and fix that tonight. But are we going to sit up there and argue about, you know, you were right, it was Calvinism. No, you were right, it was Arminianism. We're going to be so excited to be in heaven, that'll be irrelevant. It's more important to fill heaven than to worry about which side is right. And once again, we would say at Calvary, it's too hard to get your head around. But if you're really curious, I would say come back for Romans. Because Romans, if you know Romans, it's packed with verses about chosen, elected, I foreknew you. But if only God can really understand that, why would I want to argue with somebody about it? You know? I'd rather argue about the ways to heaven, which is one way, Jesus. Pick your battle is a better way to put that, maybe. But a true Calvinist, we're going to stick on Calvinism for a second, because it is a really contentious topic. A lot of people argue about this, so this will be a kind of a crash course in maybe what a, a true, what they call five-point Calvinist believes. So let's look on screen again. They believe in a thing called TULIP, and it's just an acronym, T-U-L-I-P. The T stands for total depravity. In other words, we're all sinners, we're so depraved, we can't find God on our own. He has to kind of prompt us. So we would all agree we're all sinners, right? So we would agree with that one. Yeah, no problem with that one. The next one, the U, unconditional election. Well, we at Calvary would believe God does choose us, but we must also choose to respond. And unconditional just means it's nothing we could do. We can't earn it. There's no way we can work for our salvation. It's really no conditions we could meet, so it's unconditional, but we would kind of add that we have to respond. The third one is probably the one that we would have the most problem with, and I'll get to that in the end, the limited atonement. Limited atonement really means that Jesus only died for those elect. He did not die for the whole world, and a true five-point Calvinist person would say, no, no, he didn't die for the whole world, it's only for those elect. In other words, the ones he foreknew or chose. We would make the case, and I'll show you a verse here in a few minutes, that he died for everybody. Everybody gets the offer to be saved. So that's one that we would differ on with maybe the Calvinistic side. Irresistible grace. We would sort of here at Calvary say, you can fight God off. You can resist. You can say no. Israel as a nation, what did they do? We clearly would say, does anybody not believe that Israel is God's chosen people group? They walked away. They abandoned. Even Jesus, there's a verse, and I don't have it in my mind, but he stands over Jerusalem and says, Oh, Jerusalem, if only you would return to me. And he compares them to like chicks, and hen, a mother hen and chicks. He wants them to come back. If only you would choose to come back, is the word he uses. 
So we would believe that you kind of can resist it. It's a great offer, but you can abandon it. You can walk away from it. I mean, I've got friends that clearly, in my mind, were saved a lot of their life, and now they've kind of walked away from their faith. They've already walked away, which brings up one of our last points. Number five, perseverance of the saints. A, a true Calvinistic person would tell you, you can't resist, you're going to come, there's nothing you can do about it, and once you're there, you can never walk away. So if you ask them, well, what about so-and-so that walked away? Well, they were never saved. I personally don't believe that. I believe you can abandon your faith. You know, there's verses, let me be real clear though, there's verses where Jesus says, none can be snatched from my hand. We're not talking about snatch. So Satan can never snatch you out of salvation. But my question to all of you would be, could I jump out on my own? Could I walk away, abandon my faith? In other words, let me just use myself as an example. Here I am right now, a pastor, I'm teaching, I'm preaching, I'm obeying the word best I can. Not perfect, but trying to be as much like Jesus as possible. But not perfect, still, still a sinner, we're all sinners. But what if next week I decide, you know what? That whole gospel stuff, that's just a bunch of nonsense, I'm done with it. And I walk away, I live my life like a sinful idiot, kind of like I used to pre-salvation, ask my wife, and I never come back. I never come back to the faith. I'm living a sinful life. I die in my sin. I would say I'm not going to heaven based on that profession I made all those years ago. What does Jesus say? Abide in me, continue in me, follow me. It's a lifestyle, not an event. So that event of me praying that prayer and walking right for a short while, if I void that by abandoning and turning into like an atheist and start hating God and telling people I was wrong all these years, I don't think God's let me into heaven, but that's just me. Maybe you think different, but I'd be, here's my answer too. I would not want to go to the gate. If there is a gate, there's really not. But you know, what does Jesus say? Some are going to knock and he's going to say, what? I never knew you. And then he says, some of you, you're going to cast out demons. You're going to do great miracles in my name. And I never knew you. You're not getting in because you did it for the wrong reasons. You were prideful. You were selfish. So if he's not going to let those kind of people that did miracles and cast out demons in, why would he let Dave in who's abandoned his faith and badmouthed God and blasphemed the Holy Spirit? That's just how Calvary sees it. So you make your mind up. Here's the, here's the real my bottom line answer, though. You know Jesus. Why would you ever walk away? Why would we do that? But it's a head scratcher. Some people will. So my real advice is don't ever, no matter how tough life gets, no matter how many bad things happen, no matter how many tragedies you go through, loved ones you lose, things and you can't get your under, like why does a young person die? We don't know. But we can't abandon our faith over it. We've got to get into heaven and keep that salvation secure. So that's the whole perseverance part. But let's talk about the one I said we have the biggest problem with. So I've heard it described, Calvary probably agrees somewhere between three and a half to four of those points I put up. The main one would have been the point number three, the limited atonement. Let's look at a verse out of Romans. I love this verse, by the way. We're going to cover this in Romans once we get there. Romans 5.18. Let's look at it together. Here's what it says. So then, this is the reason we would say Jesus died for the whole world. Through one offense, that would be Adam, by the way, Adam's sin, one offense, the result was condemnation to what all? All of mankind, the whole world. 
But look what the rest of that verse, same verse, we're not melding verses, we're not cherry-picking ideas, same verse. So also, through one act of righteousness, Jesus on the cross, what's it say? The result of justification of life for who? All. Not the elect, not the chosen, all men. And if you go back to the Greek, I'm not you know, going to teach you a bunch of Greek words tonight, by the way, but I'm going to teach you this one. There's a Greek word called pas, P-A-S. It really translates to all. So in this case, all means all. And it's the same verse, same line. And once again, I didn't steal two pieces of verses and try to trick you with, you know, melding things together. If all are sinners, and we would all agree with that one, right? We're all sinners. Then the same sentence says we're all made righteous by Jesus' work on the cross. That's why one of the reasons we would take that position that he didn't just die for the elect and the chosen. He died for all of the world, all that would respond to his message, his gospel. So enough about balance. Let's go to our second topic. This one will be shorter, by the way. Don't worry. Don't get nervous. We're not going to keep you too late. Um, our second topic is called ventures of faith, ventures of faith. And all that really means is stepping out in faith. Chuck Smith wrote a whole chapter in the tailor in the book, chapter 12, is about ventures of faith. And let's think about some sort of what I would call heroes of the Bible that took that sort of venture of faith. Noah. Noah is probably one of the most famous. We've known the Noah story since we were children. He built an ark before the first flood. And many Bible scholars, by the way, would make the case before it ever rained. You can't prove that one exactly with Scripture. You can prove before a flood. So, Either way, it's a pretty big step of faith to build a ginormous boat before it ever flooded, maybe even before it rained. That's a step of faith. Look at Abram, or Abraham as he turns to later. He left his people group, left his nation, left his family, and went to a foreign land. And that's not the hard part of that, though. He didn't know where he was going. God just said, go. He didn't say, go over to you know, the other side of Florida, go over to Georgia, Louisiana. He said, just go. I'll tell you when you get there where you're going. He stepped out in faith. Let's look at another one, Isaiah. We know the Isaiah story, but we don't really think about the cost sometimes. Let's look at the verse together once again. We know this, the famous words Isaiah said. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? He says, send me, send me. Here I am, send me, which we think that's awesome, and sometimes we think, maybe I could do that. But we don't really count the cost of that story because here's what Isaiah had to really do. He wasn't just step out in faith. He was told to judge and condemn the nation of Israel, all of his people, be this negative prophet, if you will. He also was told he would watch his nation crumble and fall with his own eyes, and he did. But not just that, he was also forewarned that he would experience bitter opposition disbelief, and extreme ridicule. So now let's put ourselves in that story. If I knew ahead of time, I was gonna, let me just read those three again. If I knew whatever God was calling me to, I'm going to experience bitter opposition, disbelief, and utter ridicule, would I still say, send me? I don't know. That's a tough one. Luckily, God doesn't usually put us through some of those things for stepping out in faith. He just wants to get us out of our comfort zone. So the real question becomes, do we believe, do I believe, do you believe that God is still at work in your life? Yes, I hear some yeses. So then we have to join him in that work. 
The way we do that is take a step of faith. Step out in faith. Faith is how we please the Lord. Let's look at two verses out of Corinthians. Back to Corinthians again. Here's what they say. Without faith, and I would call it steps of faith, not just faith to believe in him, steps of faith, it's impossible to please God. And he must, anyone who comes to him must believe he exists, and then he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Which willing, It's not just steps of faith. This is also describing a general faith in God is all-powerful. He's almighty. Jesus is the only way to heaven. 2 Corinthians says, though, we live by faith, not by sight. In other words, we have to step out sometime. We don't always see the end result. Our faith is, is really how we please the Lord, and it may take a step of faith. But two of the reasons we don't take those, you know, we're not always Isaiah, we're not always Noah, we're not always Abram. We are usually fearful of failure. That's one of the, I'd say, the main one we don't step out for. But, you know, God's okay of failure. All he says is step out. He sometimes wants to test us to see if we'll just step. He even knows we'll probably fail because he's God, but step anyway. Prove it, in other words. The other reason we might not take these steps, we just get too comfortable sometimes. We like our life, we like where we live, we like where we are, we like kind of just sitting and being a little casual sometime. Stepping out is hard, and we just get a little comfortable. But we also have to understand that when we step out in faith, sometimes God, it's, it's not God, it's me. Maybe I'm stepping out. So I'm going to describe three quick problems of this stepping out in faith. The first one is letting go. In other words, sometimes I have to let go what I think is a great idea because it wasn't God's. In other words, here even at Calvary, sometimes we think we have this great new opportunity, this new opportunity of a class, a group, a ministry, a service opportunity. So it can be true as a church, but remember, it's okay to fail. We're trying a lot of new things sometimes around here. It's okay if they don't all work. We're taking that leap of faith as a church, but it's also for me and you. We have to take those same leaps of faith. But it might be my bad idea, and I think it's great, but God says, no, I never told you to do that. That's on you. I'm going to let it fail. Then he kind of reins me back in. That's okay. Which is our third point if we're taking notes. If we step out in faith, but it doesn't succeed. In other words, if God is not growing it, I can't keep pushing on my own strength. I don't have to make it succeed in my power. If God's not behind it, let it go. It's about letting go. That's for a church as a whole, by the way, and also for us individually. Let me read you. I don't have this one on screen, but here's a Chuck Smith quote for us again. Here's what Chuck said. Step out in faith, but if it doesn't work, don't push it. Be able to walk away. My take on it would be be able to let it go. Be able to walk away, be able to let it go. And he was talking about the Calvary movement as a whole when he said that, by the way. Our next problem, I remember I said we had three little problems. The first one was letting go. The second one's living in the past. And what that would look like, we would say, that ministry has always been awesome. It's been so great to have this, that, or the other, this class, this group, this thing. That may have been true five years ago, ten years ago. But is it still working today? Has it lived its life, in other words? And what I mean by that, let me be more specific. We don't always want to go around saying, look what God did. Look what God did in that old class, that old group, that old thing we were doing. 
we don't want to say, look what God has done. What we really want to say is, look what God is doing. Look what God is doing, which will require us to try some new things. Once again, if they fail, shut them down. Brings up our last point if we're taking notes. If these ventures of faith as a church or as an individual, if, if they fail, it's okay. But if it succeeds, rejoice. Be happy about it. This is awesome. This great new thing God started our church. We rejoice in it. But if it fails, we don't just walk away and quit trying anything ever. We regroup. We rejoice if it works. If it fails, we regroup. We regroup and just try a different thing. Step out in a different area. So that was our second problem. Our third problem, and we're almost done, I can get in the way. You can get in the way. And what that looks like, we step out in faith. God is behind it. He blesses it. But then I try to take over. I kind of try to make it work in my power, my flesh. It starts in the spirit. It ends up in the leader's flesh, one of your flesh. We get back to our own human talent and try to make things succeed in our power, not the Lord's. You know what God will do with that one? Hands off. Okay, Dave, you have at it and see how that goes. And then what will happen? Crash and burn. If we try to be God, he will back away. There's only room for one God. If you start in the Spirit, let the Spirit continue. Another Chuck Smith quote, then we're almost done, really done. Here's what he said. This is a great quote, too. I should have put this one on screen. Having begun in the Spirit, don't seek to be perfected in the flesh. Having begun in the Spirit, that could be for us personally, but even as a church-wide ministry, having begun a thing in the Spirit, don't try to perfect it in our flesh. We have to stay humble, teachable in the background, and let God and the Holy Spirit do the work. And a good example of that, by the way, would be Saul. Remember Saul? He started well, tried to take over, tried to be in charge, tried to do a priestly thing, didn't sacrifice and kill the right animals or people. And God says, I'm done. And then he moved on to David because Saul was trying to be king and God, really. So stay in the spirit. We have to let God lead. Does that make sense? Okay, we're really done. I'm going to pray and close, but I hope you've enjoyed this little summary. Once again, if you're still curious, buy that book. But whatever you do, come back for Romans next week. But maybe you're here tonight and you've never really prayed for salvation. Maybe you've never prayed to Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Come see me. I'll pray over the group tonight. But come see me tonight and let's just pray that prayer and cement your salvation. Think about what Jesus said. I am the way, the truth, and the light. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's like I said a while ago, it's Jesus says it's my way or the highway. Don't leave here on the wrong highway. So let's pray. Lord, tonight, thank you for your word, even though it's a topical message through um, a book Chuck Smith wrote, Lord. It's full of your concepts. And Lord, keep us from arguing about the minor differences. Let us not argue about non-doctrinal issues. Keep us focused on heaven and filling heaven to capacity with more unbelievers, Lord. We can decide how we got there once we arrive, but Lord, the important thing once again is to get there. So help us get there. Help us bring others with us. Give us a boldness through the power of your Holy Spirit to be evangelists and witnesses and invite more people to church 
and pack heaven with just people that love you, Lord, like we do. We love you, we thank you, and Holy Spirit, just use us to glorify your holy name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.